Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for it's God through Christ Jesus. It's calling us. church. Good morning and welcome to Riverside. So glad that you are here today. And again, if it's your first time with us or one of your first times with us, let me say again just how grateful we are uh, to have you here. It's a great day to gather uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, mainly because we are starting a new series today, launching a new series called Legacy Maker. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, like Rhonda said at the beginning, would love for you to pick up one of these, uh, one of these launch packets for this new at-home series we're doing called Legacy Makers. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know why talking about this is so important. Because the faith that you've been given, the faith that you've received, the faith that you have, you know that it wasn't given to you to end with you. You know that, that one of the responsibilities you bear as a parent, as a grandparent, is to pass on that faith. This is one of those things you prayed for the very first time you held that child in your arms. You prayed for the day that you would see them confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You prayed for the day you would see them baptized into Christ. But it wasn't just about their baptism. That's not the moment. I mean, that's a moment, but it's not the moment. What we're praying for is for them to grow up into a lifelong relationship with Jesus, for them to live all their days for his name and his renown. That's, that's what we're praying for as parents and grandparents. You know why it's so important for us to talk about this idea of legacy? Because it's this legacy of faith that we're striving to pass on. And if you're here today, if you're here today and you came and you th- you're thinking, oh, oh, great, They're, the next few weeks is all about families and kids and grandkids, uh, that's true, but I'm glad you're here too, because my guess is that you want to live a life that matters as well, uh, that you want to leave a legacy that, that is a good legacy, that you want to live a life that makes a difference, and that doesn't just happen. You understand that, right? Living a life that matters, leaving a legacy that you want to leave, that doesn't just happen. That happens on purpose. That happens with intention. That happens when you make a decision that you're going to live different. And so I hope you know that for all of us in the house today, that that talking about this idea of leaving a legacy, it matters to all of us because your life matters. Your life matters to God. Your life matters to those that God has put around you. And the way you live the life matters you live matters. The question is, what kind of legacy are you leaving? But maybe it might be more helpful to step back and ask this question first. What are you striving for? What is it that you are striving for? If you had to come up with one thing or one answer to that question, what would it be? What are you you striving for? Uh, You may have heard this story. Uh, In the 1968 Olympics, uh, there were four athletes sent from the, uh, the small East African country of Tanzania. Uh, the hope was, was that one of these four athletes would come home with a medal. Up to this point in time, no athlete from Tanzania had ever won a medal in the Olympic Games. And so these four athletes were sent from Tanzania all the way to Mexico City where the Games were held that year. One of those athletes was a runner, a marathon runner, by the name of John Stephen Akwari. He went to run in uh, the marathon there in the Olympic Games in Mexico City. The problem was 
uh, Mexico City sits about, at that time, 2,300 meters above sea level. Even though he called Mount Kilimanjaro home, he wasn't used to running at that elevation, not running marathons at that elevation. So, of course, he's trained and trained for months and months and months. He comes to Mexico City. He lines up with all the the runners there to take off that day. Uh, The gun is fired. They launch out on the race. And not too far into the marathon there in Mexico City in 1968, John Stephen Quarry, because of the elevation, begins to experience cramps. It's painful. It's painful. But he's worked too hard to come to this point and stop. So he keeps pressing on. About halfway through the marathon, he thinks, okay, I've, I've, I've kind of fallen behind. I've got to improve my position in the race. So he starts making his way ahead, forging his way ahead. At that point, he's in the middle of a pack of runners. And sure enough, something happens, and all of those runners fall down. Everybody's injured. People are hurt. Different things have happened. The Olympic medical team runs onto the race course, and they're tending after all the runners. They go up to John, Stephen, and Corey, and sure enough, he's pretty banged up. He's got a bruised shoulder. His, his right knee, is, he's got a gash, it's bleeding, but that's not the worst problem. He's also dislocated his knee. The advice of the medical staff for the Olympic Games there in Mexico City in 1968 said, hey, we're going to bandage you up, but you need to stop the race. Eighteen other runners stopped the race. John Stephen Aquari was not one of them. He kept running. And I want to start here, I want to start the series with this question, because I think, I think this is where many legacies are born. What happens when the race that we're running becomes difficult? I want you to think about that question. What happens when the race that we're running becomes difficult? My guess is, my suspicion is, if we were to sit down together and have coffee and have this conversation, and I were to ask you about the people in your life that you look up to, the people of faith that you look up to, the people that you would tell me about, they probably have a story. The reason you look up to them is probably because in their life, in their story, somewhere along the way, they face some kind of difficulty, some kind of adversity, some kind of hardship. And the reason that you look up to them is because in the middle of that adversity, in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that struggle... They didn't give up. They kept the faith. They held on to their hope. And they made it through. And whatever it is that they were going for, whatever it is they accomplished because of that, however they came out the other side of that, the reason you look up to them is because they didn't give up and they kept on going. And that is their legacy. That is their story. And that's the reason that you look up to them. But if you, if you go back to the beginning, if you were to ask them, why did you keep going? Why didn't you give up when it got really hard? Why didn't you give up on God? Why didn't you give up your hope? Why didn't you give up on life? Why didn't you give up on your faith? They would probably say there was a a higher goal in mind. There was a desire before that adversity hit. There was a striving in them that would not let them give up. And because they didn't give up, because there was a striving, because they pressed through that difficulty and that adversity, they have a legacy. They have a story to tell. So if, if what we're striving for in some way determines our legacy, let me ask again this question, what is it you're striving for? I think it's a really important question. What are you striving for? I know this isn't true for everybody, but I know it's true for a lot of us. And we may not talk about this or say this out loud, but we know this is true. If what we're striving for if we're going to be really, really honest, is, is just more 
Because we live in a world that strives for more. Because we've, we've caught the bug and we want more too. We want more money. We want more possessions. We want newer things. We want nicer things. We want bigger things. We want a better house. We want a nicer car. And we want upgrades, people. Can I get an amen? We want to fly first class. That's what we want, you know. I mean, we ask every time, and it never works out, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. That's what my son says, you know. We want more. When we play the comparison game, the problem is there's always somebody who has more, and we want what they have, and we never can quite get to what they got. And when we do, there's somebody else, and, and we just always are striving. We're striving for more, but then this becomes my question. If, if more is what we're striving for, is that, is that the legacy we want to leave our kids Mom and dad, they were always striving for more. And it makes me think about this question, too. Like, at what point could you look your heavenly father in the eye and tell God, God, I've got enough. You have blessed me enough. Like, God, just so you know, if I never got another raise if I never got another promotion, if I never got another house, if I never got a newer, nicer car, if I never got a a new piece of clothing. Somebody says, that's too far, but you know, you hear me, right? God, I've got enough. When could you look at God and say, God, enough is enough. I've got enough. You have blessed me enough. I have everything I will ever need. I've got enough. If more is what we're striving for, Is that the legacy we want to leave? What no one tells you, what the world doesn't tell you, is that whatever that more is for you, think about this, see if this is true. Whatever that is, whatever that more is that you're striving for, that becomes your God. Whatever that more is that you're striving every day for, that will become your God. And if that's true, if whatever the more is you're striving for in your life, if that becomes your God, then let me ask this question, is God the more you're striving for. Are you striving for more of God? This problem, this tension around striving and striving for more and and wanting more and wanting to have more, you know this. This is not a new problem. This isn't an American problem. This is a problem that goes back thousands of years. In fact, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, like Grayson said earlier, I want to invite you to open that up. Um, you can go to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. And, and for the next few weeks, we'll be in Philippians 3, just so you know where we're going. Philippians is a small letter in the New Testament, and it's written by a man by the name of Paul. All right, Paul, Paul when, he, when he met Jesus or when Jesus found him, however you want to say it, his life was completely turned around, upside down, and he was on fire, literally on fire for Jesus. He spent the rest of his life starting churches and sharing the news of Jesus Christ with everybody he could. Everywhere he went, it seemed like he would plant a church. One of those churches was in a Roman colony in Greece, in Europe, called Philippi. All right, That's important because this was the very first church. In Europe, this was the very beginnings of the church reaching outside of the borders where it had been contained at that point. Paul takes the gospel out of the country into Greece, into Philippi, and starts a church there. It's a fantastic, amazing moment. And Paul loved this church. He's writing this letter to this church for several reasons, but one of those reasons is to thank them. He wants to thank them because they have sent somebody and they have sent something. They sent somebody with a financial gift to help him because... He was in jail. He's literally writing this letter to this church that he loved from a jail cell, from prison. 
He's in a Roman jail. We're not exactly sure where. Some people think it was Caesarea. Some people think it was Rome. Other people think it was Ephesus. It's not really all that important where he is. We know that he was in jail. And the problem was, no matter which jail cell he was in, if you're in a Roman jail cell, they lock you up and they forget about you. There's no prison guards. There's no Roman soldiers bringing you three meals a day. They lock you up and they walk away. And if you're going to eat... If you're going to have provisions, if there's going to be something to sustain your life, there have to be people on the outside who love you enough and care about you enough to come check on you and to come bring you what you need. The church in Philippi heard, hey, our brother Paul, he's in jail. And they sent someone with a financial gift with provisions for him to take care of him, to sustain him. And he was so grateful, he writes this letter to tell the church to thank you. Thank you for remembering me. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for providing for me. And I want you to understand this background because, again, he's writing this letter from a prison cell. If anybody had any right to be upset, if anybody had any right to complain about his circumstances or be mad at God for where he is at this point in his life, it's got to be Paul. After all, he's in jail. Why? It's not because he robbed a bank, people. He's in jail because he was preaching the gospel. He's literally in jail because he loves Jesus so much he can't stop talking about it. And he annoyed the people around him so much they put him in jail because of it. If anybody wanted to be mad at God for where he was in this moment, it was Paul. But that's not his legacy. And I want you to see this because in the middle of this difficulty, in the middle of this pain, in the middle of, 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 of this struggle, I want you to hear Paul's legacy. I want you to hear what he writes to this church in Philippi. So in Philippians 3, we're going to start in verse 7. I want you to hear these words this morning from from Paul. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Now you may think if you're just picking up there, what in the world is Paul talking about? What What things is he talking about that were once valuable, but now he considers them worthless? If you back up a few verses, you'll catch it and you'll see. Paul's talking about his his own accolades, his own accomplishments, his own resume, all the things that he had, all the things that, that were at his fingertips before he met Jesus. You see, before Paul met Jesus, he was a rising star among the ranks of the Pharisees. He learned from the greatest teachers. He was on a fast track to being the most important, if not... Uh, Yeah, one of, if not the most important Pharisees of his day. He had all the wealth, all the possessions, all the position, all the accolades, all the accomplishments, everything anybody would want, Paul had. He was on the fast track. He went straight to the top. And he said, all of that, I had all that. But here's what you need to know. All that I was striving for before, I now count it all as worthless. Isn't it interesting that that the same things that they were striving for are really the same things that we strive for. 2,000 years and human beings haven't changed. They value the same things that, that, that we value. And so much of our identity, just like so much of their identity, was tied up in this, in wanting more, in wanting to have more, of living for their own name and their own fame and their own renown, to, to rise to the top, to be at the top, to have that notoriety, to have the pictures to put on Instagram. They wanted it too. Well, the, what the world doesn't tell you is that, you know, living for your own name and your own fame is just too small a thing to live for. Paul says, I had it all, but I want you to hear me. 
All of that, all of it is worthless. He says in verse 8, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of what? Of this, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Paul says there is one thing of infinite value that is above every other thing. And what is that one thing that he's striving for above every other thing? It's this. It's knowing Jesus. But here's the question. What happens when we spend all of our days striving for other things? Here's what I know you know. At least I think you know this. They're watching us. You know this, right? Our kids, our grandkids, those little ones running around this place, they're watching us. Just last night, we're getting the kids ready for bed. It's, you know, it's getting late, and so you know, we're doing our thing. Everybody's getting their own stuff ready, and Will walks into the room where I was, and we start giving each other a hard time, and my son called me a knucklehead. You can laugh at that, uh, or not. Thank you. I get the sympathy laughs now. This is, let me move on. He called me a knucklehead. No, why did he do that? He did that because on more than one occasion when we're joking around, I've called him a knucklehead. And now he's just calling me what I've called him. And we're having a fun time and we're laughing about it and we're, we're goofing off. But our kids imitate us. They use our same words. They have our same mannerisms. They do what we do. They behave like we behave. They, they are watching us. They're watching us. And here's a scary reality. We get what we are spiritually. Parents, you need to know this. We get what we are spiritually. Grandparents, you need to know this. We get what we are spiritually. And I want to take a quick time out because I need to speak into that tension just for a moment. Because I know there are some of you in the room and either you have raised kids or you are raising kids. And for whatever reason, at this moment in time, your kids or your grandkids, for whatever reason, they've walked away from faith. And when we speak about these things, I want you to know this, that we're speaking in general terms, okay? Generally, we're talking about how things work. But I know, before I, before I moved here and started preaching every week, and I love doing what I do now, but before that, I did youth ministry for 16 years, worked with students four years before that, 20 years of youth ministry. I saw it over and over again. There were some kids that grew up in homes that were full of faith. Mom and dad loved Jesus and loved his church deeply. And for whatever reason, those kids, they, they didn't get it. And I can't explain it. If we want to sit and talk about it, we might could diagnose it and figure some things out. But for whatever reason... Those kids, they, they had a hard time connecting with God and connecting with the church and connecting with faith. Other kids came from homes where there was no faith. Mom and dad didn't go to church, didn't care about God. And now those kids had somehow found our church and found our youth ministry, and they were on fire for Jesus. How did that happen? I have no earthly idea. Okay, so I get it. Sometimes... Sometimes it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. We live in a broken world where things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. And and right now, if your kids are struggling in their faith or your grandkids are struggling with their faith or your friends are struggling in their faith, here is what I would say to you. Do not give up on them. 
Okay, we're just coming off of Easter weekend, last weekend. Do you remember who some of the very first believers in Jesus as Messiah were? It was a man crucified on a cross for sins he did commit, for crimes he did commit. He did rob a bank, and he was crucified for it. And at the 11th hour, he confessed his faith in Jesus. And guess what Jesus said? Today you will be with me in paradise. There was a Roman soldier there who looked up when the earth shook and the sun went out, and he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Over and over again, the story of Scripture is that people who are far from God come near to God. So if, for whatever reason, your kids, your grandkids right now, at this moment in their story, in their journey, they're far from God, don't give up. I can guarantee you this. God, their Father in heaven, who loves them more than you do, has not given up on them. All right? All right, time back in. Generally speaking, parents, we get what we are spiritually. Grandparents, we get what we are spiritually. This matters. This matters. I don't have to tell you this. You know this too. That we we live right now, present day, today, 2019, in a day and time when the church in America is in a steep decline. You know this. Our own particular tribe and brand of faith, it is in an even steeper decline. I don't know if you feel the same sense of urgency that I feel. I feel it. I want you to feel it. Because if we want to have a legacy to pass on, if we want to have someone to pass it on to, then we got to start asking some new questions. What do we want to pass on? And who do we want to pass it on to? And what are we willing to do to reach the next generation for Jesus? Paul said it so well in verse 8. I hope you caught this. I mean, like you, There was once upon a time when there were things that I was really holding on tight to that I thought were really, really valuable. But now that I've got three kids, and now that current day stats, I looked it up again last week, they're saying it again, five out of ten students, when they graduate high school, they will walk away from the faith. Tonight we're going to celebrate our seniors. Do you want to pick which half of the group isn't going to follow Jesus next year in college? Paul said everything else is worthless you got to let go of everything else and hold on to this when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't know about you, but if I've got to leave a legacy, that's the legacy I want to leave, church. Knowing Jesus. That I'm living my life to know him and make him known. And so, parents, you have to ask the question then, right? Do your kids know that what you're striving for is to know Jesus? Do they know that knowing Jesus is your highest aim and your daily pursuit? Grandparents, do your grandkids know that you are pursuing Jesus? Do they know that, 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 that knowing Jesus is your highest goal and your greatest aim? When they see you, do they see the joy of the Lord in you, or do they see something else? I mean, let's just get real honest for a moment. The reason our kids are leaving the church and walking away from the faith, generally speaking, isn't because the church is necessarily doing anything wrong. It's not because our youth minister needs to teach more classes on apologetics. I'm sorry, that's not it. They're holding on to what we're holding on to. They're striving for what we're striving for. We get what we are. They're watching us. And they're becoming just like us. 
And whatever it is that we hold most valuable, whatever it is we've elevated to the top, guess what they're going for? That exact same thing. If we want our kids to love Jesus and love his church, can I just suggest a real simple alternative? What if they saw in us a deep love, a tangible love, a visible love for Jesus and his church? Paul says everything else is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And then he said this, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Sitting in a jail cell, by the way, he's not, what, five, six years away from being martyred for his faith. He doesn't know it right now, but he's not very far away from dying for Jesus. And he says in this jail cell, I want to know Christ. That's all I want. And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death so that one way or another, I will experience resurrection from the dead. And that that was Paul's legacy. That's what he's known for. That's what we're talking about today. His love for Jesus and his love for the church. That's what he was known for. I think the question for you and me is, what are you known for? What are you known for? If I were to go to your kids or your grandkids and say, hey, what, what, what's your mom and dad known for? What's your grandparents known for? Would Jesus be on that list? Would his church? What are you known for? In 1968, in Mexico City, John, Stephen, and Corey kept running the race despite his shoulder being bruised and battered, despite blood running down his leg, despite his knee being dislocated. The guy that won the gold had already crossed the finish line. The guy that won silver had already crossed the finish line. The guy that won bronze had crossed the finish line. In fact, everybody who ran the race that day and finished it had crossed the finish line except for John Stephen Aquari. By this time, the sun had gone down. People are leaving the stadium where the race was going to finish, and the camera crews were packing up their stuff, and all of a sudden, he came around the corner running. One by one, people that were still in the stands, they saw him, and they saw what was happening. They see him running with blood you know, going down his leg. The, the bandages at this point are falling off. They're flapping in the wind. And people see him entering the stadium around the track. And they start clapping. One by one. Applause breaks out. Camera crews rush back to, the, to their spots to capture this moment of John Stephen Aquari as he crosses the finish line. And as soon as he does, you know what happened, right? Reporters, they, everybody with a camera comes up and they come around him. And they all had the exact same question. Why did you keep running? Why did you keep going? It's obvious you are in tremendous pain. And that's when John Stephen Corey spoke these words that have gone down in Olympic history. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish one. I'm not an Olympic runner. I'm not even a marathon runner. A few years ago when I moved to Texas, I had a desire to run a half marathon. I'd done a 5K and a 10K, and I thought that would be next. But I had no idea how to train for it or how to do it. And 
Thankfully, God put two men in this church in my life and who knew how to do that, who had run marathons and half marathons. And sure enough, they came to my house every week, every morning, super early, and we began training for a half marathon. Training wasn't always easy. There was some pain and some growth in that process. I'll never forget race day, though, getting to run in a half marathon. And we started that race together, and we finished that race together. And what was really cool, I didn't know this because I'd never run a half marathon. Some of you have done this, so you know this. I didn't know this. When you finish, it doesn't matter if you finish first or last. They give you a medal. Did you know that? You should go do it just to get a medal. It's fun. You get a medal. And you know what it says on the medal? Every medal says the same thing. You know what it says on the medal? Finisher. Now, that's a legacy, right? Finisher. You see, we're not really called to win gold. It's not about who finishes first or last. You and I, we're called to run the race that we've been given to run and to run it full of faith. And we're called to finish the race. Paul said this later, and we're going to talk about this more later. But in Philippians 3.14, Paul said these words. He said, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. We've been called to finish. And so here's what I want you to know today. The legacy you leave, whatever it is, the legacy you leave is the direct result of the passion and pursuit of your life. And as we begin today, this is the question I want to ask you. Is that Jesus? Is Jesus the passion and pursuit of your life? And if not... What needs to change so that he is? What needs to change so your kids and your grandkids, so your friends and your coworkers, so your neighbors know that Jesus, at the end of the day, he's the one you're striving for, to know Jesus. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand together. The trick is we all leave a legacy. The question isn't, will I leave a legacy or want I leave a legacy? We all leave a legacy. The question is, what kind of legacy will you leave? You know what's really interesting to me? I, I mean, I don't follow the Olympics that closely, but people who do, people don't really remember who won the gold that year in the 1968 Marathon Olympics. But everybody who knows the Olympics knows that story of John Stephen Acori. He finished last but he finished. And this is my prayer. This is my prayer for us as a church. It's my prayer for you as a family that we could finish the race together. That we could cross that finish line and I don't know if we get medals or crowns. I don't know what it is. I don't even care. I don't think we'll care at that point. I think what matters is that we finish together. And we stand there before Jesus. And he looks over us. And the one that we've been striving for, we get to see face to face and hear him speak the words, well done, well done. So may we be a generation who seeks after Jesus. And may Jesus just be the passion and pursuit of all of our lives. And may that be our legacy, church. May that be our legacy.